Um, Alice and I were in Turkey a few months ago, and there were many surprises and adventures and crazy things that happened while we were there. We were there to help some some friends and friends of friends there who uh, who were coming out of another country who were refugees and were trying to get their footing spiritually and take the gospel message back into their country. What I wanted to do was to just teach them, particularly things from the Old Testament and the prophecies, to equip them to spread the faith in their own culture and their own language. They had, they had other plans and they had other ideas, and there were more of them than there were of us, so their ideas prevailed for what we did over there. Um, and one of the things that they did, which... I really wasn't expecting at all, is they said, Chuck, we have lined up speaking engagements for you at other churches. And uh, so uh, so I went and, and spoke at three other churches, and two of them I spoke uh, a couple of times. And it was quite eye-opening to see the tremendous variety of churches that are, were out there in Turkey. And one of the things that really shocked me and jarred me was the extent to which uh, a very corrupted form of the gospel was circulating in, in Turkey. And the surprising thing was it was the exact same corrupted form of the gospel that I was seeing spreading all over the United States. My good friend of mine, Finney Curavilla, had warned me about this years ago. He said he goes to rural India and he finds the same preachers and the same popular gospel that's being spread in America, it's kind of a counterfeit gospel, is spreading into the heartlands of India. So uh, it, it, this really ties into the message worthy of the kingdom because um, I, I'll explain why. There, there, I saw two versions of the gospel were competing with each other in Turkey, just like there are two versions of the gospel that are competing with each other in the, in the United States. And the, there's the popular gospel, which is uh, my, my daughter was looking for churches when she was down in Virginia, and it seemed that almost everyone she, she, was, she was checking out was teaching this. The popular gospel is basically Reformation theology. It's not about, I want to talk about ideas and the presentation of the gospel. This isn't about bashing, bashing other particular groups, but we have to understand there are two distinct versions of the gospel that are out there that are circulating. And the crazy thing is, a lot of people, because they sound similar, they'll use the, they'll use the same words, but they mean something completely different. And to understand what the difference is and what the gospel message is and what it means and why it's important that we strive to be worthy for the, worthy for the kingdom of God. Uh, the, the popular gospel that I was seeing even spreading into Europe, and we weren't just in the western part of Turkey. We were in far into Turkey where the, the, the tourists aren't coming from the west, they're coming from the east. They're coming from Russia, from the Ukraine, they're coming from the Middle East. So we were, we were out of the area I would think of a normal American influence. But I was seeing this gospel spread there, and this was actually the larger churches were the ones that were, that were holding to this. And uh, 
the uh, the gospel message was basically it was Reformation theology, and I'll I'll explain a little bit uh, a little bit more about this. But um, the 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 scary thing to me is not only that it's spreading all over the world, but it's also even spreading into kingdom groups uh, or groups that are groups that historically have been resistant to Reformation theology. It seeps into there as well. I saw. I was in a Restoration Movement church, which doesn't buy into Reformation theology, and there was a concern that the church was was getting way too focused on the actions of men and on works and things like that. And so as an antidote to that, they started preaching the Reformation theology of, of it's all the grace of God and we don't really have to do anything. So I saw it in that circle. I talked to friends who were going to in Anabaptist, conservative Anabaptist churches, and they say, you know, it's kind of crazy, but one week we'll get a good, solid kingdom message, and then the next week it's Reformation theology. And people are getting both messages mixed in with each other, and they can't really tell the difference. Uh, even in our own house church, sometimes people would say, wow, I was listening to this great lesson uh, on, on, uh, on YouTube, or, or I was reading this great book that's talking about the sovereignty of God or the grace of God or um, uh, how to have a better family life, Christian values, things like this. And they say, this is a great book. This is a great preacher. And I'll start to take a look at it. In about five minutes, I'll say, this is Reformation theology. This is, this is a totally different gospel message the person's coming from. And people, people say to me, How'd you figure that out so fast? This, I thought what the guy was saying was perfectly good. What are you talking about? What's the problem with, 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 with this message here? And, and, and it comes in from all different ways. It comes in from books that we read. Uh, in, in churches, sometimes people want to go deeper in the Word of God. And so they'll buy a study Bible. Or they'll take a course at a seminary. And you know, like in Boston... There are the conservative seminaries and there are the liberal seminaries. The liberal seminaries, the, you know, they don't take the Bible as the word, inspired word of God. The conservative seminaries are generally Calvinist. And uh, so it comes in through that, and these are the people who are studying the Bible more, more carefully, more seriously, more, more, uh, more academically oriented. It comes in even in the hymns and songs that we sing. The, the, the people... Reformation people believe Reformation theology who think that way. They have written many, uh, they've written lots of books. They're very popular. They're great speakers. They're building mega churches. So church leaders who, who want to know, what do I need to do to make my church grow? Will we'll take their courses or listen to their books. So it's coming in uh, all over. And they're large and well-funded. And I was seeing it spread even, even over there. Uh, let me... Explain very simply what the difference. The modern popular message that I was seeing spreading all over the U.S. and over there, it's, it, it, there's a logic to it. So it's good to understand the logic so that you can see what the difference is clearly because it's, it's a huge difference. It appears very similar, but it's really totally different message. And the, the message goes like this. This is the popular message was that first of all, at the fall of man... People became totally and completely depraved. That nothing good was left in man. That all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. 
And since we are totally depraved, since we can't do anything, since all people, since the fall of Adam and Eve, all people became totally depraved, the only way that anybody can be saved is God basically reaching down and plucking them out of the morass of total depravity that they're in. Because we don't even have enough good in us to reach out and seek God. So God will have to, God will arbitrarily, for what his own purposes, decide that certain people are going to be saved. He doesn't want everybody to be saved, but he decides of his own sovereign will that certain people are going to be saved. Because after all, if we are totally depraved, we can't do anything good anyway. And uh, consequently, since we can't do anything good on our own part, we're totally depraved. Salvation is a gift that God gives to us unconditionally, and we can't lose it either because we're totally depraved. So we're not going to be doing anything good in the first place. Uh, David Adams was in Minnesota visiting a large church, and he called me back afterwards. He says, Chuck, they're preaching exactly what you're talking about here, and it's, it's unbelievable. These are, these are large churches, they're huge churches, they're having a tremendous impact. And, and, and the, the, the obvious, since we're totally depraved and it's all a gift of God and God arbitrarily des- deciding who's going to be saved, you can't lose your salvation, so they teach once saved, always saved. So it all fits together. All you have to do is believe in Jesus, that God will decide who's going to be saved, and, and that's it, you're saved for, for, uh, for, for eternal life. And it's really reinforced the idea that we are all unworthy. We are all corrupt. We are all depraved. We are all unworthy. Now, there's something really humble and good sounding about that. Because, you know, imagine if somebody says, no, we're, we're totally depraved. We're wretched. We can't do anything good. And somebody says, well, wait a minute. I think we can do some things good. Well, it sounds like you're being prideful and arrogant and and attributing things to yourself and taking away from the sovereignty and the goodness of God. But we have to to consider what Jesus actually taught. So that's, that's, that's the popular gospel which is coming into our own churches. On the other hand, there's the old gospel, the original gospel. There's the old gospel, the original gospel, the kingdom message. It was held from the, by the church in the beginning, which was the fall of man and woman had tremendous consequences and brought death into the world. But man did not become totally depraved. Let's consider what Jesus said. If, are people really totally depraved? Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus talks to the people warning the Pharisees. He says, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you'll kill and crucify. Some of them you'll scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murder between the temple and the altar. So, If we're all totally depraved, if no one is righteous, where is all this righteous blood coming from, Jesus? What happened? I thought that people were all totally depraved. Jesus says, no, all the righteous blood that that came on the world is going to come on you. You're going to have the guilt for shedding their blood as well. Peter said the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 2. 
can follow along with me there. This is the foundation, is believing that we're totally unrighteous. We're completely depraved, that nothing good can come out of us, which sounds very spiritual, but, but that's not what Jesus taught. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Stop reading in verse 6. Here says, In turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them example of those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivering righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, tormented in his righteous soul from day to day, from day, to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So how many times here is Peter calling um, Lot a righteous man? This righteous man was tormented in his righteous soul. In contrast, he's not saying all the people in Sodom and Gomorrah were totally depraved and I arbitrarily decided to pull Lot out. He says, no, Lot was a righteous man who was, who was, who was tormented by the evil that he saw around him. In, in, in the book of Job, God says, this is God speaking about Job. Let's turn there in Job chapter 1 to see what God says about Job. The Lord is speaking to Satan. In Job chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, Then the Lord said to him, Have you considered my servant Job? Since there is none like him on the earth, a blameless, true, and God-fearing man, one who abstains from every evil thing. Well, if people are totally depraved, what is God talking about here? Obviously, the doctrine of total depravity on which all of this theological tower construct is built on is nonsense. God speaking to Satan says, look, Satan, here's somebody who loves me and who has a good heart, who is, who is a righteous man who is following me. He avoids every type of evil. He's not totally depraved. So clearly, from the very beginning, from Abel, one generation after Adam and Eve, from the very beginning, there have been, maybe it's only been a few, but there have been righteous people. In Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about the great heroes of faith that are to inspire us by the lives that they lived and the sacrifices that they made who show us what it means to live a life of faith. And it says in Hebrews chapter 11, the world was not worthy of them. These are people who are living on a different spiritual plane than, than most of the people around them, like, just, like, just like Lot was. So you've got to understand that mankind did not become, we, maybe we inherited a tendency to sin, but we certainly didn't become totally depraved. Um, 
So the, 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 the message from the beginning was that man fell, we inherited a tendency to sin, we inherited the consequences of sin, our, our nature was, was impaired by the fall. Uh, the, another thing that's important to realize uh, in, 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 in 1 Timothy, Paul says, God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. In Ezekiel 18, he says, I don't desire the death of anyone. I want all people to repent. This is the heart of God. He doesn't arbitrarily pull a few people out of the swamp. God wants everybody to be saved. He wants every person, the most wicked person on the face of the earth, to repent of his sins. He doesn't. He gives us free choice, and those with good and noble hearts will hear the word and retain it and seek God. Our salvation involves God as well as us. It's not something we do all on our own. Jesus talked about this in the illustration of the vine and the branches. In, in John chapter 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He says, without me you can do nothing. You can do nothing without me. This is not... It's a false choice to say, well, either it's all God or it's all me. No, it's not. It's the vine and the branches. It's, it's God and man working together. We seek God, and God gives us His grace to help us to overcome the evil one, to help us to overcome Satan and to turn away from sin. That when we are tempted, we will not be tempted beyond what we, what we can bear. God will provide a way out for us, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So we are saved by faith. The old, the old original faith is that we are saved by faith, but faith isn't just believing. Faith is demonstrated in Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is believing, it's obeying, and it's persevering. And these, this is what, this is the, the great heroes of faith in the Old Testament lived that way, and they showed us how we need to be living our lives as well. The popular gospel and the songs that come out of it, the songs that it, for, that it foster, talk about how unworthy we are. What typically happens at, at one of these church services, I was even seeing it in Turkey, is people are singing songs about, God, you're awesome, you're worthy, I'm terrible, I'm unworthy, and they, they sing the songs and they, go, then, and they leave and they feel like, well, I've had my worship experience of worshiping God, and after all, I'm so unworthy, now I feel much better and I can go and isn't it great that God chose to save me out of all these wretched people that are out here. Um, the result of that message is there is an emphasis on gratitude for God doing everything, but there's no sense of accountability that I need to be living a holy life. It's like it says in Hebrews that without holiness, in Hebrews chapter 12, without holiness, no one will see God. There's no emphasis, I need to be living a holy life. I need to be living an obedient life. I need to be living a life in the fear of God. Now, the Bible does teach in places in the New Testament that we are, in a sense, unworthy. In Revelation chapter 5, when they're saying, well, who can open up the sealed scrolls? Nobody's worthy to open that up. And 
Well, lo and behold, there is one and only one who is worthy. It's the lamb that was slain, who shed his blood for the world. He is the only one who is worthy to open the scroll. As it says in Revelation 5, verses 11 and 12. Um, In Luke 17, Jesus says the attitude that we should have when we serve God is... Uh, listen, I'm just an unworthy servant. I've just done what you've asked me to do. We shouldn't be puffing ourselves up. John the Baptist, the greatest who came before Jesus, according to Jesus, uh, he felt unworthiness in the presence of Jesus. He says, I'm not worthy to unfasten the the, the strap of his sandal. So, there is the, the, the idea that we are, in, in, in many ways, we are unworthy. We're unworthy of God. We're unworthy of receiving the forgiveness that God has given us. We are, we are, we are, we are unworthy in, in, those, in those ways is absolutely true and right. But on the other hand, the Bible does talk about we had better be worthy people. And I want to talk about that. Uh, in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the disciples in Matthew chapter 10 throughout Israel, let's think about what he says, what they should be looking for. Starting in verse 9, it says to the, to the apostle, Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you or hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake the dust from your feet. So Jesus tells them, go look for worthy people. Now, if if, if Calvin was right, what would they have said when they came back? Couldn't find any. We searched throughout all of Israel and we couldn't find one worthy person in the whole nation. And they might have asked him, Jesus, why'd you, why'd you send us on this trick journey here to look for something that doesn't even exist? And he, now, Jesus, obviously, they were, they were, some people did receive them. They did find worthy people. So Jesus talks about people being worthy of the message. And, and the, the disciples come back with joy after being sent out. In Luke 20, when Jesus is challenged by the Sadducees regarding marriage and the resurrection, let's think about what he says there. He says, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given to marriage. Now, I always focused on the part about no marriage, in heaven, but he's talking, he says something more than that. He says, Those who are worthy to participate in that age, that there are those who are worthy and those who are unworthy. 
Um, Paul talks about this several places in his writings. In Ephesians 4.1 he says, As a prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. In Colossians 1.9, he says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. So Paul is praying that they will be walking in a life that is worthy of the Lord. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, We exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Uh, and I could go on. There are more examples of this. But this is what the this is what Paul is praying for. Jesus says to look for worthy people. Paul says you need to be living lives that are worthy of the gospel. And I'm urging you to do that, and I'm praying for you that you will do that. He's not talking about us being unworthy and thank God that, that we don't have to be righteous. Um Jesus Himself. The last scripture I'll look at is Revelation chapter 3. Sardis was a church that had severe problems. Worse than any church I've ever been in. I'm going to read the first four verses. And He says, To the angel of church in Sardis, write, These are the things... These things says He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain and are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Of course, the word perfect means complete there, not flawless. Verse 3, Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I come upon you. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. If, we are, if our names are written in the book of life, and we want to make sure that they don't get blotted out... Jesus says that we need to be living worthy lives. And he talks about in Sardis, even in a dead church, that there were some people in there who were living worthy lives and who were walking that way. So, just, just in conclusion, some things to think about tonight and over the weekend. It may sound really humble and spiritual, to say that we're totally unworthy of any good thing for, from God. But there's a sense in which God demands, Jesus calls us to be living lives that are worthy of the kingdom. It's a way of life. Uh, this is what Paul is praying for, that they will be living lives worthy of the kingdom. This is a high calling. 
I can't break this down to a list of rules. It's a way of life. And it's a very high calling. And it reminds me of the heroes of faith in the Old Testament. That's how they were living. That's the way I need to be living. And this is the message that we need to be preaching. And see the stark difference between the message of calling people to live lives worthy of the kingdom and the message that we're totally depraved and we can't do anything good anyway. Um, this weekend was set up with a very loose structure and very few messages because we want to focus on fellowship and interaction with one another. It's very important that we have time when if you're not living a life worthy of the kingdom of God, you find people you trust, you can open up with and confess your sins or get the help that you need from a brother or sister who, who loves you and cares about you and, is, and, 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 and wants to look out for you. It can be very discouraging. I realize that many of us are in some tough church situations where we don't have the love and the support, where we're not getting strong and consistent message of the kingdom preaching. Now, we're not here to pull you out of churches or to build another denomination or anything like that. We just want to be Christians. That's it. We want to build bridges. We want to build unity. If there's anybody in the room you're not unified with, then you need to talk and, and forge unity there. We need to have a, a real, not, not sweeping things under the rug, not peace, peace, but really forging unity. And if you need to bring other people into the discussion, we, we get, you have to do whatever it takes. But, but that's the call. That's the call for every one of us to do this and to be prepared to challenge other people when we start hearing other, other false gospels or counterfeit gospels that are, that are creeping into the church. It's to live lives that are worthy of the kingdom, walking in the light and, and striving to do all that that, that that fulfills and calling each other to do that as well. Amen.